You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Let me read it and then I'll pray. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though for, for now, now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's words for us today. Let's pray. Lord, I could not in 50 years plumb the depths of this passage of Scripture. It is so rich, Lord, to stand before this church and to read about uh, this inexpressible and glorious joy that we have because we have been, we've been brought into this new family in Christ through your resurrection and now we have this inheritance that's in heaven for us but one day will join us on earth. That, it's insane, Lord. It's absolutely amazing. And Lord, today I pray that we would just get a glimpse of it, that you would give us faith. Faith, I know that faith in this town and this day that we live is, is a hard thing to come by. It's hard to believe, Lord. It's hard to believe the pages of this Bible, especially this passage, that this is the kind of hope that we have even in the midst of suffering. But Lord, would you give us faith? May we be kept alive through faith. May we be kept encouraged through faith. May we be given joy through faith today. So Lord, would you increase our faith? We open our hearts to receive your word. And we ask God, I pray for this church that as this church grasps the depth of your word, that we would be transformed to live as people of hope in this city. For your glory and in your name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in a new series um, at our church that we're going through during this fall season, um, or as we like to call it here in San Francisco, summer. So as we go into our summer in San Francisco, uh, there's a series uh, called Foreigners and Exiles is what we're calling our series, and it's based on 1 Peter. So we're going to the book, the letter of 1 Peter, the, the series, there was a graphic, it's gone now, but it was there, I promise, um, I think I saw it. But Foreigners and Exiles is the, is, the, um, uh, is the series that we're going through. 1 Peter is a letter written by Peter, the apostle, who was Peter the disciple who followed Jesus. Peter had a very storied past, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Um, and he's writing to Christians who were scattered, it says, throughout Asia Minor. Here's a map that we used last week. Uh, 
with the red indicating where uh, this letter, this region that this letter was circulating in. So Peter's letter, he was writing it to these people, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia. And this letter went out to these scattered Christians all over this area, and his letter circulated. Here Peter calls those he's writing to, so, so when he writes to these people, he calls them foreigners and exiles. That's how we get the, the name of the series. He calls them foreigners and exiles. Now what this means, now this is my, not, might, might be something you have to lock in your head. Uh, by the way, this is more of a teaching type sermon today, so you might want to like, take notes, think a lot during the sermon. I know that we have a lot of thinkers in here. So what, what this means, when Peter calls his readers foreigners and exiles, he means that Christians... Followers of Jesus, those who we're going to talk about in a second, have been born again, that they are simultaneously inhabitants of this or that actual city or country, that they're inhabitants of Pontus or Galatia or San Francisco or wherever. You're, you're citizens, you're residents of an actual city or an actual country, and at the same time, simultaneously, you are citizens of God's new world. You are citizens of both San Francisco and God's new world that has broken into this world due to the reality that is Jesus Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. Because Christ came in, preached the kingdom of God, lived the kingdom of God, brought in the kingdom of God, established the kingdom of God on earth, now those that have been born again into his family or have been following him who are Christians are simultaneously citizens of Pontus, Galatia, Rome, wherever, San Francisco, and at the same time residents of God's new world that has broken in. And this new life for the follower of Jesus, this new world that has broken into our world has changed the nature of life for us. So for the Christian, the, the very nature of your life has changed. Everything is almost changed in a sense. The way you see the world is changed once you come into faith in Christ. Peter refers to then, because of this change, this, because you see the world differently, Peter calls his readers foreigners and exiles. Now, what we hope to do in our series through this letter is to slowly, and it's going to be slow, it's going to be the next several months, slowly unpack what this means. What does, it mean that, what does it mean that we're actually foreigners and exiles, that we're here, citizens of San Francisco, but also citizens of the kingdom of God that has made its way into San Francisco in us, and that we're now foreigners and exiles? That's what we'll attempt to do over the coming weeks in this series. Today, I would like to talk about how Christianity is weird that's what I like to do. I like to talk about how Christianity is weird, or I, I should probably say, at worst, Christianity is weird. At best, Christianity is strange. And so today, actually, today I would like to talk about how Christianity is strange. How about that? And not strange because of all the weird things that have been attached to Christianity, some justifiable and some not, things that non-believers, let's call them non-believers, those who do not believe, and there might be even some here that do not believe in Christianity, that non-believers have pegged on the way that Christians think. And there's, uh, there's a book recently, I'm going to be quoting from it uh, twice, a couple times, called Unapologetic. Um, I would commend this book to you, but it has a lot of language in it, so... That might want to make you read it more. I don't know who you, who you are, but you're like, oh, I want to read that. Um, 
Well, I would commend it like wholeheartedly, but the book is called um, Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. It's a great book, and, he's, and it's unapologetic in the, in the sense that he's not trying to prove Christianity. He's just trying to say it makes sense. So in that sense, he's unapologetic, but then he also says, and I'm not sorry. That's why. So it's a great book. Um, he starts by saying, he starts his book by saying that his daughter has just turned six years old. And that for, for some time in the next year, he says, for some time in the next year, during my daughter's sixth year of life, she will discover that her parents are weird. She will discover that her parents are weird. Weird because they go to church. Weird because they believe in God. Weird because there will be all these older voices, he writes, that will tell her what that means, that her parents are Christian. All these older voices that will tell her what it means that they go to church and follow Christ. And then he lists some, and I'll quote some of them from his list. He says, it means that we believe in a load of bronze-aged absurdities. It means that we don't believe in dinosaurs. It means we're dogmatic, that we're self-righteous, that we're too stupid to understand the rationality of our creeds, that we're the hair-shirted or self-sacrificing Um, enemies of the ordinary family pleasure of parenthood, shopping, sex, and car ownership. I like that. (laughs) That we think the world is going to end. That we want to help the world end. (laughs) That we prostrate ourselves before a God who has the reality status of Santa Claus. That we prefer scripture to novels, preaching to storytelling, certainty to doubt, faith to reason, law to mercy, primary colors to shade, censorship to debate, silence to eloquence, death to life. The actual list he writes is actually three pages long, and that list could go on and on and on. There are things, many things, that people will peg on Christians for believing, and they say Christianity is weird. And some of them, a lot of them, are not true. Like a lot of things he lists are not true. And the author pokes fun at this. But I will confess, and the author also confesses, that Christianity is strange. Christianity is strange. It is a strange phenomenon, and there's no hiding it, and there's no attempt to hide it in our text. If you read our text, Christianity is beautiful, but it is strange. It's strange in that you have to be born again. You see, you guys, the followers of Jesus, the Christians are reborn or born again. That's strange language. That's not strange if you grew up in church. But if, you're, if you did not grow up in church, that's strange language. It's strange because he says your faith, you actually will go through trials and sufferings, and trials and sufferings will make you better. You should. God's bringing trials in your life. That's strange. He says you don't see this Jesus. Peter's like, I've seen him, but you've never seen him, but you love him. That's strange. That you would love something or someone that you've never seen. That you would believe, and not just believe, but trust. And not just trust, but love. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You would believe in a God you can't see. That is strange. There is a strangeness about Christianity. There is. I know that when people get saved, they think that they have to like, they don't know how to like live inside um, like the Western world. They don't know how to live inside their culture as a Christian. Now, when you become a Christian, do you like get, what do you do? Do you get a kit? Like, is there a kit, a handout kit? It's like, okay, so this is what you read now, and this is the music you listen to, and this is what you wear now, and this is how you have to work now, and this is where you give all your money now. Like, is there a kit 
that just teaches us how then do we live? And we think that there is. There's a whole Christian marketing scheme that goes, now that you're Christian, you adopt all the Christian stuff. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter, there is, that's weird, okay? So I want to separate weird from strange. That is weird, okay? To think that there's Christian clothing is weird, okay? Really weird. But the strangeness of it is not lost here. The strangeness of it, Peter hits head on. The strangeness of it is first framed by this rebirth. It's strange. Look what he says. Verse 3. Praise be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth. Now, this is fodder for ridicule. I mean, people say it all the time, are you born again, son? Are you born again? Like we, we, that's like a derogatory thing to say sometimes when people mimic the church. It just sounds strange. Okay, when Jesus first started using this language, even around religious people, it was weird. And in um, John chapter 3, it says this. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a religious, he was a religious leader. He came to Jesus at night, and the reason why he came to Jesus at night, at night because the, the religious leaders and Jesus didn't really get along that well. Jesus was like this, he was a teacher and he was a rabbi and he did these miracles and he was powerful, but the religious leaders saw him as a threat, a dangerous threat, ultimately such a threat that they plotted to kill him. But this one religious leader, Nicodemus, was like, sneaks, out, sneaks away at night to go visit Jesus because he doesn't want to be seen by his contemporaries, his friends, as like wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. So he sneaks out and he goes, Jesus, okay. Listen, rabbi, teacher, I, we know, we know, I know, my, my friends know too, but they just want to admit it, but I know, that you are a teacher who has come from God. I know that you are. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with them. I know it. I know your secret, okay? And Jesus replied, and Jesus sometimes will reply with these things. You're like, wait, were we, are we in the same conversation? Like, are we talking about the same thing? And he does this here. He does. And it's, it's brilliant. But he goes, very truly, I tell you, speaking of Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He just drops this on him out of nowhere. Like, you're from God. He goes, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, there's that language, born again. Now, for many of you in here, you might have heard the born again language. Imagine it was brand new. Imagine I walked up to you and go, it might be brand new for you. You might be going, this is weird. And rightly so, it is weird. Or it's strange. It's not weird. Sorry. It's strange, okay? You need to be born again. And there's that language. He drops it. And, and, and Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's speaking to a religious audience, not a secular humanist audience. And even then it's lost. And so he's confused. Look what Nicodemus says back. How can... Someone be born again when they're old? I mean, that is such a good question. <laughs> I, I hate that we read the Bible and just skim over the stuff like, oh yeah, he just said that. Like, if someone really said that to you, if the first time you've ever heard it, you want to be born of God, you got to be born again. You're like, wait, how does that happen? How am I born when I'm old? I'm too big. <laughs> That's what he says. He goes, this is a good question. He's like, the first time you hear it, it like, doesn't work. Nicodemus is not trying to be a comedian. He's just like, wait. He said, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb, right? Picture, no, don't picture that. <laughs> but it's like that. Jesus is like, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, so what you're saying is that how, how I'm, I'm too old. Like, and do I, 
my mom, what? Like, I don't know what that means, and I don't, I don't understand. And so Jesus, again, this is what he goes on to say. It's like, again, are you part of the same conversation? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You're like, well, thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> so what Jesus is saying here, this, here's what it means. This is what Peter means, and Peter is obviously taking the language from Jesus because he followed him, he was with him. He probably heard this whole conversation. Here's what it means. Christianity, to believe in and follow Jesus, means a rebirth. To be born again, or Peter calls it a new birth. See, Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh. That is, when you are born, you are born into a family. You are born into a culture. You are born into a worldview, an ethnicity, an inheritance, oftentimes, a socioeconomic status, access to opportunities, privileges, just because you were born into that family. You are born of flesh and you are given all of these privileges. You are given all of these things that you would not have access to unless you were born in that specific family. Some of you, many of you in this room, have had access to things that most of the world doesn't have access to just because of the family you were born into. You went to colleges and universities because you inherited it. You inherited enough money to go to those colleges. Or you, you, you grew up in a system to where education was so primary, where you were given tutors when you were a young kid, and because of the family you've grown into, you had opportunity, you have opportunities now that if you did not grow up in that family, you would not have. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And that cycle goes on. That cycle perpetuates for good or for bad over and over and over again. And what's also involved in that cycle of flesh giving birth to flesh is this idea of sin. Now, I know that's a word that you might understand. I'll try to break it down in a second. Like sins of the father visit upon children of the second, third, and fourth generation. How do you break out of like generational, multi-generational sin or patterns There's a sin element even to flesh giving birth to flesh. King David was a songwriter. He wrote a lot of, uh, in the middle of your Bible is a book called the Psalms. He wrote a lot of those Psalms. They're songs. And in one of his songs, he writes, I don't know what tune this would be in, but he writes, surely I was sinful at birth. I don't know if it's surely, I don't know how it would be sung, (laughs) but surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's saying that. He's saying that to God. I was sinful at birth. When he's repenting before God, he's like, I was sin- I haven't- I've only sinned before you and only you, and I've been sinful at birth. Now, I know babies, and there's a lot. I mean, our church is exploding with babies. Babies are so cute. Like, you can't hold a baby and go, oh, sinner. Like, little sinner. I mean, some parents were like, yes, I see the fall in my child. But babies are cute. You're not looking, holding them and go, sinner. But what David is saying, what the scriptures teach, that that no one has to be taught to do wrong. It's like innate. There's something in humanity where the sins that you, that you have get onto your child somehow and you don't have to teach them to do wrong. You actually have to teach them to do right. There is something that's transferred there. Uh, uh, Francis Spufford, who's a writer of Unapologetic, uh, he defines sin. This is where it gets 13. So He defines sin. He says, sin basically means in our vernacular, in our culture, Western culture, he's writing from from Britain, um, and uh, as he writes, as as a Brit, he's writing, um, eventually his book jumped the the pond, and there's uh, an American 
kind of version of this book as well. But as he's writing, he's like, we, even in, in the UK, have redone this word sin. We've, done, we've redone this word sin in our Western world. Sin in our lives today means indulgence or enjoyable naughtiness. That's what sin means. It's the pleasurable consumption of something. So whenever you want to sell ice cream that has like a coating of chocolate, it's like, it's sinful. You're like, I want it. Like, it, it's silly. We even use sex to sell this. We, we, use, we use all these different words. This word, sin, has been hijacked by our culture where it doesn't even mean the same thing anymore. He says if you, want, if you wanted to make people worried, you'd use a different word or different phrase. You'd say you talk about eating disorders or addictions. He says you would have to go to another vocabulary cloud altogether if you really wanted to get people's attention. But then he goes, let me try to define sin for you without using the word sin. And there's language in here that I, we kind of bleeped out, but I wish I could say it, but I won't because I'm a respectable man. No. Um, <laughs> I wish I could, but I just won't. I just don't think it's right to say it. But it's there, and you'll get the point. He says this. What I and most other... Now, okay, stop. Don't read ahead. Gosh. <laughs> yes, thank you. Let me say this real quick, okay? And you guys really want this. You're like, I want him to cuss. Um, <laughs> The reason why, uh, the Apostle Paul does this too. Sometimes you need to use language that arrests you to like shake you out of your, your, your sleep, your slumber. Like, oh yeah, sin, la, la, la. But we need someone to take us and go. And, and if you are in here and exploring Christianity and do not know all this talk about sin that, non, that believers always talk about, here's a, here's a great, I say a great definition of it. So here it is. Don't read ahead, let me read it to you. I have to say this all the time because you guys are so fast at reading. I'm, I, could, I could barely pronounce the words. Okay. Are you guys reading? I'm just a test right now to see if you are reading ahead. It's not up there? Oh. Ready? Okay. What I and most other believers understand by the word I'm not saying, sin, to you has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to F up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to F things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy, our active inclination to break stuff. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods and promises and relationships we care about and our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects, those high gloss positively, uh, those whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. How? Now I hope we're on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. So what he ends up abbreviating it to is the H-P-F-T-U, the human propensity to screw things up. That is what sin is. It's your propensity, your inclination over and over and over again to screw everything up, everything, relationships, moods, friends, promises, people, shiny objects that you just got new and you just want to scratch them, like, oh, I want to just, just one little ding on this thing would make it. Like your, your tendency to, to see something, just want to like, add this evil, like I want to knock that over. I just, want, I just want to do it. I don't know why I want to do it. When you're on Munich, you just want to slap someone. Like, why do I want to slap them right now? 
I really would love if I could just slap them and walk away. Like, what is that? It's sin. It's the human propensity to screw everything up. That, that is what David was talking about. That is in us. That, I think, and, and, and Francis Bufford said it, I think, well, that we all can agree about. That is a truth about everyone in this room. I don't care who you are. That's all of us. What's the solution given to us in the scriptures? What is the solution of Rabbi Jesus who comes in and teaches? He tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And it's a cycle that perpetuates over and over and over again until the spirit of God breaks in and you are reborn. You are born anew. You are born again. You have a new birth. This is what it's talking about. What it's saying is that through a rebirth, you are now brought into an entirely new family. Okay, so just as the first time you were born, you were born into a family. You were born into a culture. You were born into a worldview. You were born into an ethnicity. When you are reborn, guess what? You were born into an entirely new one now. You have a new father. You have a new, you have a new priorities You have a new life. You have a new everything. You have new priorities, new privileges, new opportunities. You have a new status before God and before the world. Before God, you are his beloved child. Before the world, you're a foreigner in exile. We have a different worldview now. We have a new inheritance even. I know there might be a lot of fans here of Downton Abbey. I don't watch it, so I don't even know why I'm talking about it. But I hear a lot of it from you guys. It's, it's a period piece basically surrounding the crumbling of the aristocracy. But when, when people have watched this and things that blogs that I've read about this and people write about it, has this sort of racial wars or class wars really crumbled? I mean, they have different outfits, but they have the same problems. It's the same thing that we're seeing even today what's been going on in Ferguson. We all want something to change. I mean, Ferguson is in America, the land of opportunity, and we still have this sort of thing, where you're born into poverty or privilege, or you're born into opportunity or little to no options, where just because of your family or your skin color or your race or the family you were born into, it gives you this. But what if, what if we could, all of us, be born into a whole new family? What if we all can be born into a whole new family, where it doesn't matter your race or your status or your family of origin, or your tribe, or your language, or your past. This is the family of God. There was something I said last week where a lot of people think that Peter was writing to people who, because of their race, because of their status, because of the families they were born into, they were actually marginalized, but the church went after them because, guess what? It doesn't matter where you're from in this family. Come in. This is the family of God. Jesus, through his resurrection, brings us any who would believe in him into a whole new family. He brings every single one a rebirth, a birth out of darkness and into light, a birth out of a life of sin and that human propensity. Now it's been redeemed, and now God is saving, sanctifying you, as we'll get to next week. And then Peter adds this, not only do we have a new birth, But we have a new birth into a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you're probably looking going, wow, you've only got like two sentences and we're already 20 minutes into this gig. What's going on? It's a lot. We won't get to all of it, but it's a new birth into a living hope. Now, this living hope, 
Why does Peter say we have a new family that has a living hope? Why a living hope? Peter contrasts a Christian hope that is alive. The Christian hope is alive with a hope that is dead. The hope that is dead is a hope that's based on futile things. And what Peter means here is, I would imagine, like, for instance, us. We have, as, a, as collective humanity, we have this tendency to put our hope in things for a good two-year run, typically. So we put our hope in something, and we're like, yeah, that, and then it disappoints us. And how do we keep, how do we keep ourselves from being so soul-crushed from that moment of disappointment when the things that we put our hope in crush us? You know what, what keeps us going? This wonderful thing that we created called consumerism. Like, oh my gosh, that campaign, that person, that advertisement, that, pers- that, that relationship, that resolution, that goal, that potential failed. And then we go, oh, but there's that shiny new thing. And then we go after that. And it's perpetuated. It's called consumerism. And we have, this is how we've shielded ourselves from the hopelessness and disappointments this world serves us. The next new thing. The next big thing. And we're like, okay, this smartphone sucked, but there will be a new one. <laughs> this candidate didn't keep their promises, but there will be a new one. This relationship failed miserably, and it was probably my fault because I had this human propensity. You know what I'm going to <laughs> But there's going to be a new one. There's going to be a new set of goals and new stuff to go with them. But we don't realize, we don't stop to think that all our hope is truly futile, that we're just hoping for the next new thing. They were like, okay, this, this thing I hoped for is totally not what I thought. And we're like, oh, but there's that. And I hope for that. And that thing fails us. And we hope, and we just keep that cycle going and going. It's just this two, always two years out. Therefore, Peter says, it's a dead hope. That hope that you're hoping for in this world, the things that die, the things that fail, is no hope at all. It's a circular hope that's based on new things that will wear out and die. In ancient Greek thought, the culture to which Peter was writing, they had at least a realistic understanding of the despair of this life. One of their philosophers wrote that though the sun can set and rise again, once our brief light sets, there is but one unending night to be slept through. Like, whoa, dude, calm down. That's so sad. It's like, oh, though the sun rises and sets, our life, when it sets, it's just dark. This perpetuating darkness. Life is, is full of despair, and then there's death. And there's nothing. It's just darkness. It's quite like the materialistic philosophy of today. The only thing that is real is matter, some people think, and therefore only things that matter are material. This is a dead hope. That is such a dead hope. But the Christian hope is alive because, because it follows the pattern of Jesus. The Christian hope is alive because it follows the pattern of Jesus whose sun set and rose again. And because of that, we, like Jesus, will rise again too. The actual resurrection life that Jesus accomplished is the life we now live today. We have a living hope. Becoming a Christian means that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he does for you. When God rose Christ from the dead, he does that to every single person who puts their hope in Jesus. And the very depth of your being, that is true. This is what baptism signifies. This is why this ancient 
ritual of baptism that has been part of the church since the beginning is alive and well even today because it signifies this death and resurrection. And that happens now. The Christian hope is everlasting because Christ, the ground of that hope, is everlasting. One writer by the name of Karen Jobes writes, she writes this about First Peter, this part of First Peter. She says, the present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. Our hope is pinned in Christ. And now, this is what we have to learn about hope. Our word hope in English is weak. It's really, really, actually, it's laced with doubt, okay? So when we say I hope, we always have this like lace of doubt. It's like when you park somewhere and we're like, I hope I don't have a ticket. (laughs) What are you saying? I probably have a ticket. (laughs) See, your hope is laced with this doubt, okay? This is not the hope that Peter talks about. He's like, hey, we have a living hope. I hope. I hope I get to heaven. I, I hope that when I die, it's there. I, that's, not, that's, a, that's such a weak English definition of hope. That is not this word. This word is full of real anticipation. This word is full of expecting the coming of good. This word is like when you were a kid and it was right around April and May, you, were, you could not wait for summer vacation. You knew it was coming. Summer vacation is soon and you were hoping for it. You weren't hoping that, like, maybe my teachers would let me have summer vacation this year. I don't know. You were hoping. You were like, no, it's coming. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have so much fun. I'm going to sleep in, play video games, run around, swim. I'm going to do all the things I get to do on, on summer vacation. That was a, that's a real hope. That's what this is talking about. It's not like, I, well, I hope. This is secure and as much as Christ died and was raised from death by, Jesus, by God himself. This is a real hope. A real hope. Then it gets even better than that. He says, and not just do we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, and fade. Not only do we have a living hope, but we have now a new inheritance. Now, this this is something that, gosh, this is the hardest part to teach. This is the hardest part to convince you of, that we have an inheritance What Peter is saying here is that our inheritance is in heaven, and it's kept there. Now, if you have anything to write with or highlight, would you circle the word kept? It's kept in heaven, meaning it's kept safe there. Your inheritance, the promise of of all the riches and all the blessings and all the promises and all the peace and all the rightness, all all the wrongs that God will make uh, right— All of that is kept in heaven. Now, a lot of us think, well, it's kept in heaven, and then when I float to heaven after I die, I'll get it all. I'm like, riches, yay. Well, it's kept there. It's kept there. It'll actually, when God makes all things new, it'll actually join you on earth. This is a whole different thing. I know, I don't want to, but I want you to start getting out of your mind like, okay, as soon as I die, I get to heaven, I get all this this stuff. No, when, when, what Peter is writing here is like, it's kept there. It's secure there. It's just the most secure bank account you could put anything into. Jesus talks about this, where moth or rust does not destroy. It's kept there, and then one day you will receive it. So God is keeping all of your inheritance. God is keeping everything that you, for, for, for flourishing for all eternity there. But not just is he keeping that for you, he's keeping you for it. This is the security that we have. 
Peter says this, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, you, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is it kept there for you, but you're kept there for it. God has said, in, on this earth, though you go through trials, and he's gonna talk about that in a second, though you go through suffering, God is keeping you. This is security. This is such assurance that God, by faith, he says, through faith, God is through faith shielding you. You trust, you believe with all of your being. God is keeping you for, for the new heavens and the new earth. He's keeping that for you and you for it. He's, he, there's this like double security going on. I'm keeping all of your inheritance, all of your hope alive. But not just that, I'm keeping you. Trust that he's keeping you. Shielded by God's power into an inheritance. Now, allow me to get into the strangeness of this. I might have to cut this off in a second and do two parts, so bear with me. Let me get to the strangeness of what this means. You are born into this new world, this new reality, into a living hope. Through Jesus' resurrection, resurrection, into a new inheritance that's been kept in heaven for us because we are, God, by God's power, being kept for it. But the strangeness of it, the strangeness of all of this, though it's true, is that we still live in San Francisco. Okay, so I know that we got into all this otherworldly language. Like, we're kept in heaven. It's kept in heaven for you. You have this new inheritance, a new birth, and a living hope, and all this other stuff. That is true. All of that is true. But we still shop at Trader Joe's. Like, think about it. Like, you can trip out on all the majesty of it, and this is why it's sometimes hard to connect it down on earth. But you're like, I'm, I, my inheritance is in heaven, and like I'm secure in Christ, and I'm new, and I'm reborn, living hope. Um, so what do you want for dinner tonight? Like, do you want to go eat a burrito in the mission, or what do you want to do? We still ride Muni. We still walk our dogs. We still wear jeans. We still pray that there's snow in Tahoe this winter. Like, we do the same thing as everyone else. I think about this. This is what's so strange. You are part of that world, but you live in this one. You are very much people who live in San Francisco. And that's the strangeness of it. That my mind and my heart are both here in the fact that I still have to go shopping, grocery shopping. I still got to get ready for work tomorrow. Not tomorrow because it's Labor Day. But the day after that, I still have to do all this stuff. But... My hope, all of it is in heaven. How do I reconcile the two things? How do I do it? Because of the nature of the teaching of this, I've not ever done this in my life, or in the life of this church, I should say, but I have to stop right there because I can't get into it. You have to come back next week because I don't have any time. It takes a long time. But let me end with this. Let me end with this. A cliffhanger, sorry. Let me end here. This is the, the thing that I want us to move into worship with. Though you have not seen him. I think this is probably the strangest part of Christianity altogether. Though you have not seen him. There are people in this room like, wait, you're, you're telling me that you worship this God and you can't see him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. 
and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is, this, is the, this is the hope of the Christian life. Peter has seen Jesus, physically seen him, physically hugged him and touched him and walked on water with him and ate with him. But he knows that these followers of Jesus now have never seen him. But they have this like radical love for him because of all that Christ has done for them. And they are filled with joy even though they're going through all these tremendous trials. And Peter's like, I can't, like, you don't even see him and you love him. You don't even see him and you're going through trials and you're suffering for his name and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You know why you guys are? Do you know why you feel this way? He says in verse 9, because you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end result, when God brings heaven and earth together, we will be saved, ultimately, salvation. But what happened because of Christ's death and resurrection is that that end time Reality has broken into the present. And we feel, it's a, it's a, it's a human experience, the salvation of our souls. What, don't read souls like, like my inner thing. Soul is, encompasses the whole part of us. Holistically, our mind, our bodies, our psyche, our spirit, all of it is our soul. That's his understanding of soul. He saved all of us, our, the whole part of us. And because of that, because of his great love for us, that he's lavished upon us, we just say, simply say this, we love, we love Jesus back. We don't see him, but we love him back. And church, I will encourage you that this is one of the greatest testimonies that you can have in this city, is to, without shame, love Jesus Christ. To love him with all of your soul, love him with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your body, that you express love for Jesus, that everything you do would be out of a response, a flowing response of Christ has loved me and he's given me a new birth into a living hope through his resurrection and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, and fade and is kept in heaven for me and I'm being kept, in he kept here for it and I love him. My response is I love Christ. And so, this is, the, this, is, this is the way that this entire city will know that we are Christian, is by our love for each other and our love for Jesus. And so I want to encourage you guys, as you guys are living in this world, and we haven't really connected the two things, we will next week, but for today, let's love Christ. For today, though we don't see him, let's love him. Let's be moved in love for him. If there's any way that you're coming into this room and as I read that definition of sin, you're like, that is me right now. There is forgiveness in Christ. And our response to that is utter adoration and love. Let's pray. Lord, this is what you have for us today, God. It's this. It was, it was this. And so I pray God, I ask right now that we, your church, would be moved to real love toward you and for you, God. Even that emotion of love would surge through our bodies. That you've saved us from our sins, from this tendency to mess everything up. That you've given us a new hope, a new birth, 
God, there's no way, I'm just so convinced of this, there's no way we can be who we are in, in this world, in this city, unless we know who we are before you. There's no way, God. There's no way these things, too fit, these things fit together unless we have that. And so ground that now in this church. Your love for us, who we are in you, and our love for you, God, do that. In Jesus' name, amen.